Yes, good day, my friend, Pastor Daniel Dagan here, Hope Apostolic Church in Port Charlotte, Florida, coming to you on our podcast, our church's podcast, Timely Words of Hope. We're so very thankful that you're with us today, and again, this is a podcast that will air two episodes a month. The first one each month will be done by one of the other ministers of our church, and then I'll do the second one each month, and it'll be put on both Spotify, Apple, and then other platforms from there. So we're very thankful you're here with us today. And just in praying about how I'm going to do the episodes that I'm honored to teach, I would just feel after God and just let God lead us. And we'll teach on different matters as we so feel led to do so. Time to time, I have a guest that comes and joins us and maybe do an interview or do an interview online. <clears throat> today, I want to open up with prayer, but I feel led just to draw us into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And just look at this chapter through the lens of the current times that we're living in. I think it's a fascinating chapter, and it gives us some perspective of the day and the hour that we're living in and the challenges we're facing as a people. I pray it will be a blessing to you. Let us pray together, can we? Lord God, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, God, for another opportunity, God, to teach thy word. Lord God, that you would use this means and this platform, God, for thy glory. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow the spirit, God, and the word to release revelation, the lives of thy people, God. Let there be a stirring in our soul to reach out to others, to draw closer to you, God. Father, we thank you for the comfort of thy word. And in everything, God, word and deed, be exalted in the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we humbly pray. Amen, amen, amen. Well, God bless you again for being with us today. It's amazing to me as you study the word of God. You study a verse, you study a passage, I'm sure you can relate. That you come to a truth to a revelation and then you come back maybe and read it again weeks later months later hear someone preach on it and God just unfolds another revelation or another truth I guess we could probably all say that about each verse or each chapter of the Bible but this particular chapter 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 it has been one of those passages the more that I dig into it, the more that I glean from it, yea, layer upon layer a revelation. I would imagine most of you have at least read the book of Second Thessalonians and you would understand this, but let me give you just a little overview as we go into it. This is one of the two letters or epistles that Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica. It's fascinating to me in these two little short epistles, Paul addresses some element of the return of Christ, yea, end time prophecy in every chapter of both of these two writings. It does seem like whenever you read the second epistle to the church of Thessalonians, that Paul was going back and he was further expounding upon some of the things that he had said in the first epistle. We don't exactly know if questions that came to him 
or if he just felt prompted in the spirit or he felt like he didn't maybe address something as detailed as perhaps he should have addressed it. But to no avail, he comes now back to this, the second epistle to the church of Thessalonica. And in this writings, he addresses the second coming of Christ again. And, and this chapter really speaks uniquely and specifically to this day and to this hour that we are living in. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll just read through it and we just kind of studied together a little bit today on this podcast. But it says in verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So he holds up again before the church that Jesus is coming, that must remain ever before us. Yes, it is true. The Lord himself said in the Olivet Discourse that we need to occupy until he comes. We need to get up and take care of our responsibilities and do the different things work and related that we all must do day by day, week by week. Jesus says that when he comes, there will be two in the field. Yeah, he sounds like work to me. One taken and one left. Two on the rooftop, one taken, one left. Two at the wheel, grinding, one taken, one left. Two in the bed, one taken and one left. It seems like to me they were very much with an awareness of God's return. They're going to be going through life as normal. Doing the normal things of life, occupying until the Lord comes. We should do that. But in the midst of going to the field, in the midst of grinding at the wheel, in the midst of laying down in your bed at night, in the midst of working on your house or whatever, we must be ever mindful that Jesus can come back any moment. His imminent return. His imminent return in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. At the last trump. So Paul is admonishing the church, the brethren, that Jesus Christ is coming. And then he goes into verse 2, and he tells them, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. Hold on to that. I'm going to come back to that. Nor by letter, as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. So, we're aware, we're challenged, we're admonished to remember that Jesus is soon to come. And then Paul feels a pressing in the Spirit. You remember? Paul says, beyond all of these concerns, the care of the church that comes upon me daily. There was a concern, there was a care of this particular church in Thessalonica, though this letter and these truths would be circulated abroad to the wide body of Christ. There was a concern that Paul had that these people may be shaken in their mind. They may be shaken in their spirit. They may be shaken by by different things that are taking place. Friend of mine, be not shaken in this hour. All of these things must come to pass. And then the Lord comes. 
You remember in Matthew's recording of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus tells them as he is speaking of his return that these things must come to pass. And then the end cometh, the Lord's return cometh. What we're seeing in our culture, the great confusion about gender, the attack against traditional marriage, culture fading into some type of dark spiritual abyss, sexual perversity exploding, wickedness and hatred rising, the love of many waxing cold. What we're seeing, you know it, you see it nightly on your news, you read about it. What we're seeing as tragic and as horrific as it is, as bad as the calamities are, let us remember that these things must come to pass. Prophecy will not fall to the ground. One jot, one line, one tittle, one word, one precept, one prophecy. None of it will fall to the ground. Jeremiah spoke as an instrument of God and said, God's word shall not come back void. It will do that which God intended for it to do. All of these things must come to pass. I don't rejoice in the grievous things that are taking place. I'm with you, friend. I lament the horrors of our culture. But yet I do recognize that the Lord has given us scripture speaking at this very day and hour. These prophecies must come to pass. And that helps us to navigate what's in front of us. That helps us to navigate wars and rumors of wars. Pestilences such as COVID literally means hearts failing them for fear and on and on. But Paul felt a concern in the spirit. And he writes to the church of Thessalonica that they be not soon shaken. You probably know. I certainly do. I know some people that have been shaken because of current events. Because of all that's going on in the world. Shaken to the point that they allow tormenting questions such as, where is God? If God was love, why is all of these things happening to us? Sounds a lot like the questions that the nation, some of the nation of Israel ask in the wilderness of wondering. I've watched people that have been shaken to the very core of who they are as a believer because of the turmoilic times that we are living in. Be not soon shaken, friend. Fascinating to me that when we study about end-time prophecy and the passages in the Scriptures throughout Paul's writings, other places, Daniel's writings, over and over the theme of comfort comes back to the top in the great rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. That passage that speaks of the dead in Christ rising first. We which are alive and remain shall be called up to meet the Lord in the air. That passage finishes with comfort. John 14, when the Lord is speaking about going away and preparing a place for us. That passage, among other things, it is focused upon comfort. This chapter today. 2 Thessalonians 2, 
It finishes with the focus upon comfort. So, let us not be soon shaken. Verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let us not be soon shaken in mind or troubled neither by spirit, catch it, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. Have you ever thought about why he made this statement? Nor by letter, as from us. I can tell you why he made this statement. Because when you read closely the 14 Pauline epistles, there's a couple places where Paul says, I have written this letter, yea, such a large letter, with my own hand. Every epistle, though authored by Paul, inspired by God, was not written by Paul's hands. The 14 credited to Paul. Yea, authored by Paul, if you will, inspired by God, was not written with the hand of Paul. He did have transcribers that would write for him at times. But what had happened because of that, some others begin to go forth in the spirit of hypocrisy. They begin to go forth and they try to write a letter and send it to the church under the auspices that this is from Paul the Apostle. As to say, the Apostle Paul is saying this to create confusion and to cause uncertainty in the minds of some other believers. That's why Paul says that when you receive a letter, if it is contrary to the doctrine and the teaching that you have already received, if you cannot confirm and collaborate, it's written by my hand. If you cannot confirm that I placed this letter in the hand of Phoebe, Romans 16, then you need to question it, you need to examine it, you need to measure it, you need to discern if it's truth or not. That's why he says, be not soon shaken in mind, nor in spirit, nor by letter as from us. As that day of Christ is at hand. So he moves from verse 2 into verse 3, from the concern that some people, perhaps even the very elect will be deceived if it's possible, right? If it's possible. Even the very elect shall be deceived if it's possible. He moves from that thought, from that idea, to now directly hitting the subject of deception. In the context of writing about the end time, in the context of this podcast, where I'm speaking about the very day and hour that we're living in. He writes about deception. Notice, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin, hold on to that statement, the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, So that day won't come unless there's a falling away first. Remember, Paul says, as he writes to Timothy, that some shall depart from the faith. The same guy writes to Timothy, his prized understudying people, and says that some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, right? And doctrines of devils. Some would depart from the faith. Christ said that the very elect sounds like grounded disciples to me. 
The very elect will be deceived, shall be deceived if it be possible. So as we, as God's people, the church, God's great ecclesia, move closer to the imminent return of Christ any day and any moment, as we move closer to that, deception will get stronger. We should pray, yes, against that spirit. But just understand, part of fulfillment of prophecy, deception will get stronger. We need to make sure that we are grounded, rooted and grounded, built up in the faith. We need to go back sometimes and revisit Hebrews 6, foundational doctrines, the opening verses. Make sure that the foundation is sure. Sure up any questions in your mind. Those beyond our congregation. Others perhaps watching us. Maybe an unbeliever. I pray it's a blessing to you. Reach out to us. We'll do all we can to help you. Point you to Jesus. But if I'm not your pastor. Go to your pastor. Go to your pastor's wife. You have a question about doctrine. In this day and hour. You cannot allow questions to linger. You better address them. Dig into the scriptures. If you don't get the answer and you don't feel it's complete and comprehensive, settled in your mind, go to your pastor. Go to your pastor's wife and settle it. Because if it can be shaken in this hour, it is going to be shaken. People are losing their way because of the spirit of Antichrist coming and attacking them and literally just deluding their mind with thoughts of error. Paul says the same guy. Paul says in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, If I or an angel from heaven come preaching another gospel, then I have preached, let him be accursed. He says, if I somehow get kooky and lose my mind, I guess, paraphrasing, and come back to you and preach another gospel. What's the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death, repentance, burial, water, baptism in Jesus, and resurrection, rising to walk in the newness of life, the power of the Holy Ghost. If I, Paul, come back to you and preach to you something else, some strange doctrine, then I'm cursed. If an angel comes and preaches something different than what you have heard, preached and taught, that angel's cursed. We better know in this hour where we are standing. Because the spirit of deception is not going away. It's getting stronger. Stronger and stronger. I, I get concerned when I hear preachers preach 45 minute message. And I hear four verses. I, I, I hear five or six. That concerns me to my core. I, I love stories. I love anecdotal illustrations. I love examples. I love pulling in family stories. It helps to communicate truth. But heaven and earth shall pass away. But Jesus said, my word shall not pass. We better be anchored, rooted, and grounded in the word of God. So Paul transitions into dealing with this spirit of deception. And then he gets into some very specific things about how the end will play out in this one rich chapter. Notice verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. By any means. There will be lying signs and wonders in the last days. And they will increase. You understand that, right? You understand. When you read in Revelations, 
chapter 6 to chapter 18. It is Daniel's 70th week. Daniel 9, 24 to 27 speaks prophetically about it. Daniel's 70th week or yea, seven years. When you study that from Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 18, it, it highlights the time period. It uses at the midpoint after the seven seal judgments, Revelation 6 forward, after the seven trumpet judgments, comes to the midpoint. It gives you these numbers, the book of Revelations, 42 months, 1260 days, the midpoint. And then comes the great wrath, the great tribulation, those last 42 months, the last 1260 days, 1260 days. In the midst of that, not only is the Antichrist rising as that seven-year period begins, Daniel's 70th week begins as a global leader, but then also the second beast, or the false prophet as he is called, rises. And do you know to fulfill prophecy and to allow the scriptures to be fulfilled? God allows that. Not only does he allow it, he ordains it. I've had people in a ludicrous fashion try to say that what the Antichrist does and what the false prophet does is Satan's doing alone. That is absurd. God himself gives us prophecies about it. The angels come from heaven, from the throne of God with the seven seal judgments. With the seven trumpets, go back and study your Bible. They bring the seven vile or bold judgments from God. God allows it. Prophecies fulfilled. My point about the Antichrist and the false prophet is this. That the false prophet will be allowed to do lying signs and wonders. Paul speaks of that as a sign of the end times. But we read that they will be fulfilled. In the prophetic writings of Revelation. It's it's not a new thing. There's no new thing under the sun. Go all the way back to Egypt. When you it's fascinating to me that when you study what's coming, you can almost go backwards and study what's already taken place. And it's an indication of what's coming in these last days. Study what took place in Egypt. Study the mentality of the culture in Babylon. It'll help you to understand what's taking place. Today, notice, when you go back to Egypt, it's no surprise when Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, Janus and Jambres, the two witch doctors for Pharaoh are there. You remember Moses throws down his rod, they throw down their rod, they all turn to serpents. Well, Moses rises up and eats their serpents, right? But lying signs and wonders. He tells them in verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. You need to be very careful when you begin to be drawn into somebody because they seem to be used in the miraculous, in the supernatural, or the prophetic. I celebrate those things. I believe in them to my core. But I don't just follow somebody. I'm not just drawn into walking with somebody in agreement because of a miracle because of a prophetic utterance, or because of some type of supernatural sign. I want to know, what do you believe? Tell me your doctrine. 
line upon line and precept upon precept. So, he goes on warning them about deception. I think it's a greatest sign of the last days. Deception. When you read of how common it is mentioned by Christ in Matthew 24. Let no man deceive you. False Christ. False teaching. Be not soon deceived. He mentions it about six times. He mentions earthquakes once. I mean, he mentions famines once in that passage. He mentions pestilence once, diseases. But he mentions deception and forms of deception like five or six different times in the first 20 verses of Matthew 24. My point is, it started with deception in the garden, with the serpent, devil, and Eve. It will end with deception. When Satan is released, go back and read Revelations 20. When Satan is released after the thousand-year millennial period, where he's bound with the chain from the angel Michael, he's bound with the chain for a thousand years, cast into the bottomless pit. That's not hell. He's cast into the bottomless pit. Then he's released for one final season, right? And in the midst of that final season, this is his last act before he's cast into Guiana, the lake of fire. Hell, as we would call it. His last act after being released, Satan's, after being released of the thousand years in the bottomless pit, is to go forth to deceive the nation. Satan's first trick against mankind was deception. Eve was deceived, is what Paul writes. Through the subtility of the serpent devil, Eve was deceived. Jesus most commonly warns us of deception. The last tactic of Satan, his last act before Jesus at the great white throne judgment going into it, takes Satan and casts him into the lake of fire, Guiana, Guiana, where the Antichrist and the false prophets at. His last act before being cast into that lake of fire is deception. We better know where we stand at. We better know who Jesus is. We better know what we believe. There was ever a time to dig into the word of God, it's now. There was ever a time to get serious about your faith and your understanding of God's word. It is now. So he moves on. Can you go with me another minute? He moves on from there. And he says in the end of verse 3, Except there come a falling away, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, falling away. We've seen that in our church through the last 10, 15 years. Most every pastor has seen it to a measure. It's taking place. We have to stand firm and be grounded. Then he speaks of this man of sin, this son of perdition. That's the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist. Okay, so John writes in his closing epistles just before we move into the book of Revelation. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John writes a couple times about the spirit of Antichrist. It's, it's the only time in Scripture, King James Version, that you read that statement, Antichrist, in John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. There's many other titles he goes by, but that's the only place in Scripture that you read that statement. There's many other titles he goes by. Well, as we speak of the Antichrist, John writes about what would proceed the person of the Antichrist in his epistles. The spirit of Antichrist. And John says that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world and is working today. 
from the days of the apostles, John says the spirit, an anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-truth, anti-absolute, that spirit of anti-Christ was in the world working from the days of the apostles forward. Much like John the Baptist was a forerunner to Christ. Prepare, did you hear that? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. His voice, he came in the spirit of Elijah. One preparing, his voice was preparing for one to come later. Much like that, the spirit of Antichrist is preparing for this one. The man or the individual or the person of the Antichrist, also called the son of perdition, the man of sin, and several other titles even here. Daniel writes a lot about him. The Antichrist, the one that would come. I could teach a whole lesson on that perhaps. I will address it on a podcast at some point. The Antichrist, a biblical descriptive look at him. There's so many fallacies and incomplete teachings online about the Antichrist. Perhaps we'll address that in the lessons to come. But he's identified here as a son of perdition or the man of sin. Well, have you ever thought about what's the purpose of John the Baptist? Do you think Jesus really needed an introduction? Do you think it was absolutely critical and imperative, important to Christ that his six-month elder cousin prepare the way for him? I don't think Jesus needed that. If he can hang the earth in the midst of nothingness, I believe he could have probably come on his own and done everything he'd done without John the Baptist. I believe the purpose, the most significant thing about John the Baptist's ministry is to prepare the people for what's coming. You understand, stay with me, you understand where the people's at prior to John coming, prior to Elizabeth conceiving, Zacharias, Elizabeth conceiving and having the baby John the Baptist. Prior to that, you understand where the world's at, where Israel's at. They're in a place of great darkness. Kind of parallels the time that we're in now. Between the closing chapter of Malachi 4 the beginning of Matthew 1, there's been no inspired word from God. It's a time of great darkness. The last living high priest forbid the people, about 200 B.C., forbid the people from speaking yad Hey vad Hey, the sacred name of God. And then the Roman government, following the Greeks, the Roman government just dumps worldliness and paganism and idolatry and sexuality and all of this upon the culture in a way, in a, in a vast reaching way that had never happened before. And then John the Baptist comes. And he comes to pull them from darkness and to get their minds shifted upon God. Repent. That, that's his singular most important message, only second to Behold the Lamb of God. John's message was repent. And his life comes to a climax at behold the Lamb of God. Repent. John, in a good way, in the ways of righteousness, was drawing the people out of the spiritual obscurity and darkness 
of 400 B.C. up until the birth of Christ. He was reminding and searing the consciousness of the people. There's a God. Repent. Least you likewise perish. Would rise to the steps of Herod. Preach against Herod's sin. Of taking Herodias, Philip, Herod's brother's wife. Preach against the lust that was portrayed by Salome. Herodias' daughter. It was John the Baptist that preached against the sin of the people. And, and God used them in a tremendous way to stir the consciousness of the people. His baptism was a baptism of the repentance. Drawing the people back to God. Acknowledging God in sin. That drew them out of darkness towards God. Notice now at the end of it all. As we come to the close of this dispensation. The converse of that is taking place now. The spirit of Antichrist <clears throat> has so demoralized our culture and has so infiltrated our culture, almost like the piercing of John the Baptist, was sewing the consciousness of the people and drawing them back to God. Consider what's taking place in North America over the last 50 plus years. Prayers taken out of school. Millions and millions of babies killed in the name of choice. Now, a country that was founded upon Judo-Christian values, the Word of God, now, for the first time, post-modern America, identifies as non-Christian. The majority, over 50% of many polls support this, Postmodern America identifies as non-Christian. Just like John the Baptist is preaching, begin to pierce and poke holes in the Greek culture and the Roman influence and begin to draw the people back to God now. In the last days, men's hearts are waxing worse and worse. And the spirit of Antichrist is desensitizing people and poisoning people. And it's preparing the way for the individual of the Antichrist. The man of sin, the son of perdition. Think if he would have tried to step forward in 1950. 90%, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, 90% of Americans went to church at least, I'm guessing, in 1950. Still very religious. Still gathering around the dinner table. Many families across our great country. And praying without respect to political affiliation and nuances, they gathered and they prayed together. The Bible, in many homes, a vast majority in 1950 in North America, held the final authority on what we're going to do and what we're going to believe. If the Antichrist would have tried to step forward in that day and hour, he would have been rejected from coast to coast, I believe, largely around the world. But now, the spirit of Antichrist has eroded away. Be not troubled, friend. It's part of fulfillment of prophecy. But the spirit of Antichrist has so, not just in North America, but for all of God's beloved children around the world. God died for every soul. The spirit of Antichrist has so eroded away at the consciousness of many, at the beliefs of many, at the conviction of many, that now, <clears throat> when the Antichrist comes, Read the scriptures. 
with his gifted golden tongue and flattery, promising peace where there is seemeth to be confusion from one government to the next. That guy, though he has not the affection for women, though he, as Daniel would say, though he doesn't worship <clears throat> the God of his fathers, as Daniel would say, though he bows to and worships the God of forces or nature, as Daniel would prophesy about. He's going to come with such charisma. He's going to come promising peace. And the spirit has so desensitized our culture globally that we're going to, as a culture, not the church, not the church, but the culture is going to welcome him because he promises peace. That's the warning that Paul is giving here. Speaking about the one that cometh and opposeth and exalted himself above all who is called God. May I ask, well, where's the church at in the passage? Is there any hope? What does Paul say to the church beyond? Don't be deceived. Don't be shaken. What is the charge to the church? Thank you for asking. It's coming up. It says in verse 4, speaking of the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Did you catch it? All. Did you catch it? Who opposeth and exalted himself above all. Above all. I've heard it said in a ridiculous fashion. He's going to be a Muslim believer. He's going to be a Buddhist believer. He's going to be from the sect of the Hare Krishnas. Jehovah Witness. He's going to be one that bows at the altar of Catholicism. To me, that is absolutely wrong. He is not going to embrace any one particular set of tenets of faith. Hinduism, Taoism, Baism. He's not going to embrace any of it. Anything that professes God. He is going to denounce it. And he is going to lift himself up. As greater than any other God. Initially, he will bring a semblance of different elements of all of it together. The only purpose of that is to deceive the leaders of different religions to follow him. The end of it is he will destroy everybody that opposes him. He will crush everybody that opposes him. He goes on, says in verse 4, the Antichrist who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple showing himself that he is God. Time won't permit, I have to hurry on here, but what that's speaking of is the abomination desolation. Daniel speaks of it, prophesies about it. Christ also speaks of it, Matthew 24 Mark 13, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse, pointing forward to it. Specifically, John in his writings, the book of Revelation, chapter 16 to 18, that covers the seven years, at the midpoint of those writings, where he uses the two numbers or the, the date stamp, 42 months, 1260 days, because of the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar is a 30-day calendar versus our Gregorian calendar. He uses the date stamp at the midpoint of Revelation chapter 6 or Revelation chapter 18. And he puts those numbers on it. 
1260 days, 42 months. At that point, he speaks of the breaking of the covenant between the Antichrist. John writes about it. The breaking of the covenant between the Antichrist and the Jewish people. Daniel prophesied about that and spoke that he would come and when he makes his covenant with the Jewish people, the sacrifices, the oblations daily in the temple resume. Somebody said, are we in the seven years of tribulation? Though there's signs that could fit into that, we are not. We are not. We are not. Because the number one, it's not even a question scripturally, the number one most definitive thing that asserts that the seven years of tribulation, Daniel's final week of the 70th week begins is when the Antichrist comes into pack in agreement with orthodoxy, with the orthodox Jews. And for him to do that, that temple in Jerusalem has to be standing. Because when he makes that agreement, they go back to resuming the daily sacrifices at the temple. If that's not taking place, I'm not talking about an occasional sacrifice outside of old Jerusalem. I'm talking about daily sacrifices at the standing temple. That's what begins and puts in place the prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 to 27. But he ends those sacrifices. That's what he talks about right here. The abomination desolation at the 1260-day point, at the 42-month point, at the center point. The Antichrist comes into the Jewish temple. And he sets himself up, I just read it, sets himself up in their temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped by God. And then he goes out and begins to attack all of them. Other than the 144,000 that are sealed, 12,000 male Jewish virgin evangelists from each of the original tribes are sealed by the mark. Goes on. Let me talk some more to you. I'm finishing up. Verse 5, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Did you catch it? So this is not a new concept he's sharing. But he felt like, as a parent, have you ever told your child something they forgot? (laughs) They just didn't do? Welcome to the club. I'm the president. He told the church at Thessalonica some things earlier. But they didn't get it. They didn't receive it. They were confused. Whatever. He's revisiting it now. He goes on. Verse 6, this is where you read about the church and the church's involvement. In the horrors of this hour, in the midst of prophecy being fulfilled, spirit of Antichrist busting at the doors of our church, our schools, the halls of academia, town halls, political offices, and our homes. In the midst of all of this, this is how God shows hope in this hour. Verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth. Withholdeth. You have to just give me an amen in the spirit here. What withholdeth that he might be revealed, catch it, in his time. So now we're talking about the moment in which the Antichrist is revealed. But he says there's this thing that's, that's withholding this moment. Holding it back, holding it back. Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity, that's a reference to the spirit of Antichrist, 
the mystery of iniquity, the wickedness, the eroding away of values, the mystery of iniquity doeth already work. Only he who now let it will let until he be taken out of the way. Verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2 is one of the great mysteries in Scripture. Scholars have written pages about verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2. What's the thing that's withholding? What is that talking about? I'm, I'm a big King James Version guy. I do use other translations. Occasionally even preach from them. Not against them. But I'm a big King James Version guy. Later translations renders this verse instead of the statement, he who now let it will let, it renders it as the restrainer. As the restrainer. What is that talking about? This is what it's talking about. It is the Holy Ghost. He, the Holy Ghost, working in and through God's church today. Holding back the wickedness. When does the church start? When the Holy Ghost comes down, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 4. How is the church going to be taken out of the world? Remember what he says in Romans chapter 8, like verse 11? The same spirit that quickened Christ will also quicken or resurrect your natural bodies. Can you fly now? No, you cannot. I can climb up on this building and jump off, and I'm not going to fly away, baby. I'm going to fall down to the concrete like a flapjack. Well, likewise, the Holy Ghost came down at the beginning of the church. The Holy Ghost is the spirit that resurrected the Christ. The same spirit, one spirit, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 to verse 6, one spirit. That same spirit is going to quicken us or resurrect us at the rapture of the church. Right now, the spirit of God is in the world operative in and through the body of Christ today. Yes, it's bad, but we ain't seen nothing yet. And I pray to God these eyes never see it. But wait until the church is taken out of here. Because the church, it, it's like the last line of defense. An evil enemy is trying to attack a beachhead, a, a stronghold of a good country. And the Navy SEALs are that last line of defense. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. And, and that's what the church is. We're holding back. Not, not individuals. But the Holy Ghost working in and through the church. That's the restrainer. He that led it. That's the restrainer. That's the Holy Ghost working in and through the church. The church. When you get up. And you refuse to accept the ideology. Do it with love. Do it with kindness. Do it with wisdom. Do it with grace. I don't believe in picketing. I don't throw stones. I don't attack and call them nasty names. I think it's unchristian to do it. I think it's counterproductive to what God would have us to do. But we have a right to stand for truth. And frankly, we have a sincere obligation to do it. We have to stand. We stand for the things of God. We live the life. We show love. We continue to declare what truth is, what a man is, what a woman is, what marriage is, what righteousness is, what holiness is, what separation is. We stand for those things. We pray. We intercede. We tear down strongholds. We go into the darkness and speak hope. And we speak light. Every time we do that, 
The spirit of Antichrist has no answer for it. And that is you and I in this hour of darkness, but yet fulfillment of prophecy, representing the church and standing in the gap and pushing back as a restrainer. I, I close today. I'll finish with some closing statements. The best for last. Verse 8. And then after the Holy Ghost working in and through the church is taken away. Did you catch that? After the Holy Ghost working in and through the church, the end of verse 7, is taken out of the way. What's the next thing it says? Verse 8. Then shall that wicked be revealed. Who's that wicked? It's the son of perdition. It's the man of sin. It's the Antichrist. It is my belief and feeling he will not even be revealed. It's my biblical belief and feeling. He will not even be revealed, the Antichrist. Will not even step to a place of global dominance and power until the church is raptured and taken away. Because we're holding it back. We're holding it back. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. With the spirit of his mouth. Earlier in the chapter, I didn't spend much time on it, but I want to make a quick reference to it now. The end of verse 2 speaks of that day of Christ is at hand. When you read that, it is speaking of the second coming of Christ. Okay, there's a rapture. Where we're called up to meet them in the air, right? The dead in Christ rise first. We which are alive and remain are called up to meet them in the air. But then after the rapture, the seven years of tribulation takes place. The bride and the bridegroom during that time is having the marriage supper of the Lamb celebration in heaven. It begins there. It ultimately will culminate during the millennial period. But at the end of the seven years, what happens next? The Lord comes back, right? Revelations 19. To the earth on the white horse with the armies of heaven. That's a rapture church. The Old Testament raptured or resurrected saints. The angels of heaven comes back to Armageddon. The seventh vile judgment. Armageddon, the end of the seven years. And then from there, that's the day of the Lord. The day of judgment. That's when judgment is issued. Judgment is not issued at the rapture. The day of the Lord, judgment is issued at when Jesus comes at the day of the Lord, when he comes back at the second coming. And at the second coming, we don't meet him in the air. At the second coming, he puts his feet upon the earth. Remember it says in Acts 1, the two angels are there, Peter and all of them looking around. And the two angels say in the end of Acts 1, the same place from where you see him ascend up at the ascension, at the end of the 40 days when he was with them post-resurrection, it's the same place he's coming back to. And Zechariah prophesied about that very thing in Zechariah chapter 14. How when Jesus comes to the earth at a second coming, at the end of the seven years, he will put his feet on Mount Olivet, which is just north of old Jerusalem, Calvary, and it'll be the place where Armageddon takes place. And that's when the Antichrist and the false prophets cast into the lake of fire. The ending of chapter 19 of Revelation. So going back down to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. Speaking of the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the wicked one. Says in verse 9. 
even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness and unrighteousness. Notice what it says in verse 8. That wicked one shall be revealed, the Antichrist, and then the Lord shall consume him. How? How is the Lord going to consume him when he comes back at Armageddon? With the spirit of his mouth. With the spirit of his mouth. What does it say in Revelation whenever Jesus, Jesus comes back? It says in Revelations chapter 19, verse 13 to 15, that when Jesus comes back on that white horse, the sword, the word of God, the sword of the spirit is coming out of his mouth. It's not even a battle. Jesus opens up his mouth. The word comes forth, annihilates the Antichrist and the false prophet. It's over. It's over. Armageddon's really the battle that never takes place. Now, there is some skirmishes that takes place before that, and there's much bloodshed. But when Jesus shows up, the battle's over. The battle's over. He opens up his mouth. The sword comes out, annihilates him. And, and then the, the remaining passages is a final warning to the church to love righteousness and to love truth. Because if you don't, you may end up at a place, verse 11, that is called strong delusion. He finishes this passage as he finishes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He finishes very much the same way, with comfort. As we think about the Lord's coming, as we think about the horrible things around us, and it is troubling, none of us are spiritual robots. Let us be comforted at this. We are the generation, I believe, of which the ends of the earth have come. And friend of mine, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And these prophecies being fulfilled all around us, howbeit troubling, it is also comforting. Because with every news broadcast and story we hear about, we know we're one moment closer to the return of our Lord. And that is comforting. We do need to occupy until he comes. We do need to put our hands in the harvest now like never before, such as these good brothers have done in putting together this podcast. We need to share the word of God, go forth into the hedges and highways, and compel people to come to Jesus, to the house of God, yes. Most importantly, to come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Be water baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and God will fill you with the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. If we could be of any service, please reach out to us. My personal email, pastordagan at gmail.com. I don't care where you're at. I'll personally work to help you find a church that's preaching the whole counsel of God that you can go to heaven and we'll all rejoice together, but by the grace of God. Hallelujah. I want to pray for you and yours right now, can I? Lord Jesus, I thank you, mighty God. For the touch of your spirit that I feel. Thank you God for your anointing. Thank you for brother Shane Dutton. Brother Louis Arroyo. That have worked tirelessly God. In setting this up. And helping us to go forward. With this podcast. Timely words of hope. I pray for all the other ministers God. That will work together in collaboration. On the first episode each month. Touch us all God. Be exalted God. In every word and deed. And let your spirit. Draw all of us closer to you by your grace. In Jesus' mighty name, Lord God, we humbly pray. 
Amen, 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 amen. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. God bless you, friend. If I could be of any service, you please let me know right now.